Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, thanks for coming. I'm Hugo Gurdon, Editor-in-Chief of the Washington Examiner. Thanks very much for being here. I want to thank R Street Institute, uh, uh, who are our sponsors today. They do great work towards free markets and uh, um, limited government, um, and we're delighted to work with them. Uh, Senator Doug Jones is going to be here later on, and R Street is going to be doing a panel in the middle of the program, but we're going to start off uh, with a conversation this morning with uh, Dr. Bill Cassidy, uh, senator from Louisiana. Uh, he, uh, he was elected to Congress in 2008 and uh, to the Senate in 2014, and he sits on the uh, Finance, Committee and he- uh, Finance Committee and the Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee. Uh, he does a lot of work on health care. To interview him, uh, we have Kimberly Leonard, who's our senior health care uh, reporter, She's also the author of a wonderful uh, morning newsletter, Daily on Healthcare, which I think uh, one needs to read in order to be fully informed on, on these matters. Uh, please give a welcome now to Senator Cassidy and to Kimberly Leonard. I laugh because uh, we thought it was a Charlie Palmer's. And so I get on a bicycle to come back here to be on time, and then I suddenly look at my hair is looking like, whoa, a bad hair day. <laughs> so, Thanks for being here anyway. Thank you. Glad you got your morning workout in. Uh, you got to pay attention to health and all consequences. <laughs> for sure. Well, um, you know, I have to start with the latest news of the day, which, of course, is uh, the fact that President Trump yesterday uh, apparently told Democrats that he wanted to see uh, Congress take another swing at Alexander Murray, um, which is the bill to stabilize the Affordable Care Act, for those who aren't aware. Um, and it failed because of a disagreement over anti-abortion language. And do you think it's possible that this is something you might look at again. If we actually put patients first, it is absolutely possible. If you recall, what they're objecting to is not quote-unquote anti-abortion language. It is the Hyde Amendment, which says that federal tax dollars shall not be used to support abortion. By the way, the Hyde Amendment was in the underlying bill like 160 times. So this was not anything new. It was there. It was already there. And this was merely inserted in that which was already there. I truly think at that time uh, the left was looking more for an issue than they were looking for a solution. Now, I'm a physician. I spent 25 years caring for the uninsured and the poorly insured. And the fact that people would pay politics over someone's ability to afford health insurance and therefore their ability to achieve their highest state of health irritates the hell out of me. So if they actually put our country first and not the seeking for a political issue to use on the campaign trail – Alexander Murray, which was, by the way, coupled with Collins Nelson, 
should be a no-brainer. But only if there's the Hyde Amendment attached. Uh, I presume it would be in some underlying vehicle. Last time it was in chip reauthorization, which has a Hyde Amendment. Right. And so if it is in that underlying amendment, and frankly, I still think the, uh, the American taxpayer does not care for her federal tax dollars to pay for abortion. And so that is kind of the uh, modus operandi the two parties have have established. If they don't want to, if they want to break with the modus operandi, let's revisit everything else. But obviously that's going to be a, a firestorm. Mm-hmm. But the Affordable Care Act itself doesn't have the stronger Hyde language. It's really held. So the Affordable Care Act actually theoretically, although the Obama administration clearly did not enforce this, requires every state to have uh, an option for those who are pro-life a policy which does not cover abortion, and there are still some sort of restrictions upon that. So if you're saying, no, we want to go to where the Obama administration waved off the intent of Congress, well, frankly, that was the Obama administration, and that wasn't really with the spirit of the law, and I would object to that too. Okay. Okay, so it looks like there might still be an impasse on... I sure hope not, because, again, this is about the ability of the average American family to afford insurance. Mm -hmm. Um, And if you're searching for an issue on the campaign trail, maybe not. But if you are actually, in fact, your kind of sentiment on that suggests to me that the prevailing wisdom in D.C. is that you do search for an issue. I'll tell you the prevailing issue around a kitchen table is stabilize my insurance premiums. That's what the president and the Republican Congress has been seeking to do. I hope our colleagues, our Democratic colleagues, will put that family first. What um, Now, the House is working on its own legislation to not only stabilize the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare, but they also want to expand it. They want to give more people subsidies so that more people can afford to buy health insurance, which is still very unaffordable for a lot of people. Um, have you been following what the House is doing? Do you have any thoughts on uh, the legislation that they're advancing? So this has become a little bit like student loans, where the more you make available, the more the tuition rises, uh, because this becomes a business model for the colleges to kind of exploit these student loan programs in order to float their boat. So here we've seen since the Affordable Care Act passed, there's now record profits for health insurance companies. Um, and there's been the civilization where people who formerly would not have the entirety of their, of their premium subsidized now get the entirety of it subsidized. And again, the insurance companies are making record profits. I smiled when you said afford. So there's two aspects of affording. There is the family, which is now having premiums this high, so therefore cannot afford, so let's give them more subsidies, so then premiums rise to this high, and again, we'll see record profits for the blues. Or you could speak about the ability of the federal taxpayer to afford, which has long been surpassed. Uh, the Affordable Care Act has become unaffordable for the family and for the taxpayer. I think we should change the paradigm. Change the paradigm where we don't continue to throw money into the furnace of uh, people who are exploiting the ACA for record profits. I think we should actually change the paradigm where we lower the cost of health care. We do things to stabilize the insurance market. We actually lower the premium. If you look at insurance principles, the, the biggest thing which causes the lack of insurance is the inability to afford. Now, every time you raise that premium, there's a few more people who cannot afford. Let's start making that less expensive, which, exam- which Alexander Murray would do, by the way maybe as much as 20% less expensive, and lower the underlying cost of the health care and change the kind of paradigm by which people purchase, and all of a sudden you don't need the subsidy because insurance is more affordable. 
And you are working, um, and you have been working. You've, I know the president really turned uh, to you among the groups of senators to uh, find a way to replace the Affordable Care Act. Um, but you're working on a new plan that you want that you're calling um, Chip 2.0. And I'm hoping, I know that you shared a little bit um, about this, but I'm hoping that you can share more about that today, who else is working on it, um, and, you know, how you envision that kind of a system to uh, to be rolled out and to work. So first, let's not be naive. The idea that Nancy Pelosi is going to, when they won't even accept Nelson, Alexander, I mean, Collins Nelson or Alexander Murray, that Ms. Pelosi is going to suddenly accept something besides Medicare for none, I think is, again, naive. But on, and so I, by the way, agree with the president's decision to wait until after 2020. Um, but but we clearly see a great dissatisfaction with Obamacare, and that's why the left is trying to replace it with Medicare for none. I say Medicare for none because you take 180 million people out of their employer-sponsored insurance, by and large, which they like, and you put them in Medicare, a program which is, according to the actuaries, this past two weeks, is going bankrupt in seven years. 180 million people into a program going bankrupt in seven years, you have Medicare for none. Uh, so, boom. Uh, so, but there has to be an alternative. Now, the alternative, if you will, draws upon the fact that for 25 years I cared for patients. And think of your own experience. When you have a patient-physician relationship in which the patient and you are linked, both in terms of your health and in terms of your pocketbook, that's when things are ideal. So if you have a... Uh, I'll give you a personal experience. Uh, I'm a liver doctor, a hepatologist. I always joke, if you say a hepatologist, people think you either do snakes or venereal disease. But uh, no, I do liver. And so once I had a patient come to me, she had a health savings account. The cardiologist had ordered an expensive test for her liver. She emails me and she says, Dr. Cassidy, um, the cardiologist ordered this test for my liver. I'll pay for it if I have to, but I have a health savings account. I only wish to get it. If if it's worth it, you're my liver doctor. I looked at that and I said, if this is for your liver, you don't need it. Save your $2,000. And so we were linked. Her health, her pocketbook, with my knowledge, brought her to a better outcome. Now contrast that with another patient, uh, not a patient of mine, a woman I knew, a woman of great wealth. And she says, I get, a, I get, a ex, I get an insurance policy with no deductible and no copay. I'd rather not look at the bill. And so if the doctor orders something, I get it. Now, that's paying list price. Um, so so the list price, she's price insensitive, and I would argue that's worse for her health because the more procedures you do, the more likely you have complications. That's just the reality of medicine. So this linkage between the doctor and the patient with the CHIP 2.0 what we envision is patterned after the original children's health insurance program with all the protections for the patient that are in that children's health insurance program. And every time a state enrolls somebody into this new program, the state or the patient, it could set up either way, but imagine the state or the patient gets a certain amount of money to manage that patient's health. Or the patient gets that money in order to buy insurance. It would be risk-adjusted. My state has a high prevalence of, of uh, HIV infection. So it would reflect the fact that my state has a high uh, prevalence of a very expensive condition to treat. Uh, that's what a doctor would look at. Oh, my gosh, we've got to take care of these patients. We need the resources. Uh, and, and in that, the patient would choose her insurance or, or somehow it would be, be selected, and it would be managed. 
the other part of our program. The dirty little secret of Medicaid managed care is if the Medicaid program saves money, it loses money. It's called premium slide. And so here's Medicaid managed care. The federal government is putting up 90% under the Affordable Care expansion. They save a certain amount of money. The federal government doesn't put up that 90% anymore. The state and the managed care company have just lost the federal contribution. So if they keep the dollars up, then they never lose money. This is to say they never save money. You wonder why, I, I don't know this for a fact, but I wonder if the reason that managed care is not bringing in pri uh, pharmacy benefit managers is it allows them to offload that cost and so their premium never falls. They're able to just put more and more towards the drug to avoid the premium slide. This is a strategy. Now, I think it is at least as I kind of look on the outside. So how does my program address that? Under our program, if the managed care company saves money, they can keep the money with the proviso that they use it for population health. So, okay, so I've saved, I've saved 10%. Instead of losing 90% of that 10% because that's the federal contribution, I keep that, but I use it to decrease the transmission of, say, HIV. Now, I like this because you end up saving money in the long term, not by kind of nickel and diming, but because you decrease the prevalence of expensive conditions. Every case of HIV we prevent, one, probably prevents more, but secondly, it saves on a balloon cost of expensive health care going down, going down the road. So I, I, it's, it's kind of as a doctor would approach health insurance with all the protections of the children's health insurance program to both give the patient the power but to curb long-term cost. And have you talked to the White House about this? What have conversations been like recently with the Trump administration? So, so uh, I have spoken to them. Uh, more in general, but uh, I think we're on the same page. Uh, they probably have a different approach, uh, a little bit of a different approach. But on the other hand, I have found that if you have ideas and if they're good ideas, then oftentimes they tend to get a second look and a third and a fourth. And so I think over between now and after we win in 2020, uh, we'll have plenty of chances that, if you will, popularize what I'm speaking of, just because it makes sense for the taxpayer, for the patient, for society. So let's talk about 2020. Um, Democrats are ready to run on health care again. Um, they're particularly pointing to the Trump administration's lawsuit that seeks to um, invalidate the entire Affordable Care Act. That's not Care the Act. Trump administration's lawsuit. Well, it is state the one that they've, they've asked, they've asked um, for the courts to invalidate the whole law because of uh, the zeroing out of the individual mandate. First of all, what is um, your take on the Trump administration's position? Do you wish they had moved differently on this, that they had well, defended the law? Well, at least when it comes to uh, aspects of it, there's not a position that I would have taken. But on the other hand, the president occasionally tweets things I wouldn't tweet. Uh, so that said, we also have to make sure that we don't use five pages of a 2,000-page law to keep intact 2,000 pages. Now, Tom Tillis has offered a bill which would give pre-existing condition protection, since that seems to be what the Democrats wish to campaign on. Uh, by the way, I'm speaking of CHIP 2.0, 
Chip 1.0 has protections for the patient that Democrats love. 100% of them voted for it last time for the reauthorization. So if they really care about the issue, they would join either Tillis or me in order to make sure that there are no problems. Mm-hmm. Now, by the way, I also hear that the lawsuit probably won't succeed. So some of this is just um, uh, a filler for an article, but it's not going to be a reality. Um, do you uh, – the president wants Republicans to be the party of health care. Do you think that can happen? You know, I think we need to be the party of the family sitting around the kitchen table. Mm-hmm. Now, that's one aspect of that family sitting around the kitchen table. But but if we look at the economy since President Trump has taken office, the economy has obviously done so much better. And the previous eight years, families were hurting, particularly lower-income families. And you can just look at the statistics. Now we have record low unemployment for African Americans, for veterans, for women, for Hispanics, for you name it. There's record low unemployment. What does that mean? Well, if somebody is more likely to be employed they're more likely to have employer-sponsored insurance. If they're more likely to be employed, they're more likely to have the extra income in order to afford their health care bills. And if you look at the wage growth in this economy, it is disproportionately among those who are in the lower income strata. And so that kitchen table conversation, that's what we need to be about, and so far we have been. Now, there's not one variable that you're saying, oh, we're going to be only on this variable. No, you have to be the totality. And the totality is you raise their means. As you raise their means, you also take care of stabilizing their insurance premium. Um, You also, by the way, should take care of their flood insurance program, a big thing for a state such as mine. Uh, And I can go down the list. Uh, So we need to be the party of that family, I think we are, of that family sitting around the kitchen table. One of the things that caught my attention um, recently was that the Congressional Budget Office is going to be changing the way that it scores um, the uninsurance rates. And I know that that played very heavily in the repeal and replace efforts of the Affordable Care Act because people use those CBO numbers, which which haven't played out um, given the, the zeroing out of the mandate. But um, it also played into a lot of the narrative around Graham-Cassidy. How do you feel knowing that now the Congressional Budget is looking at this differently and that maybe it could have, you know, changed the way that um, – the legislation had been perceived. I know how the game's played. One, they're two years too late. Uh, two years too late. Um, and Graham Cassidy, I can kind of go off about how people who are making billions off the status quo paid for faux studies at places like Avalier in order to come up with some analysis which scored our program over 11 years even though it was only a 10-year program. That's how the game's played. Let's specifically speak about the CBO and their comments upon the individual mandate. Jonathan Gruber, the guy that wrote Obamacare, has an article that was published at the time in both the National Bureau of Economic Research as well as the New England Journal of Medicine in which he found no statistically significant effect of the individual mandate. Think about this. The guy that wrote Obamacare did the research. There's no effect of the mandate. So people saying, oh, we got rid of the mandate, therefore, uh, either, uh, either, I'm not I don't want to be uh, – what can I say? I don't want to sound personal, but you just have to call it as it is. They either didn't know or they were being disingenuous uh, because the guy that wrote Obamacare had published federally, resp- federally funded research showing that it had no effect. By the way, that's what we have seen. Since the uh, uh, individual mandate was effectively repealed, there's been no impact upon insurance rates. Um, He's right. Now, again, these folks either knew that, and and CBO should have known it. They should have known it. 
And I spoke to them on multiple occasions, but there was so much inertia in their analysis that they did not incorporate. Uh, but that was one of the things that dinged us. And, um, and it was uh, to the detriment of the public conversation. And I know we're running out of time, but I do have two questions that I was really hoping to get in. You're leading the charge um, in the Senate on uh, addressing surprise medical bills. Um, and I know that you sat down with reporters, which is something that you do quite a bit, and we appreciate that, to talk about, um, you know, what you've been working on. And uh, what's the latest on, on that? So surprise medical billing, you know, if, 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 if the TV audience could see it right now, I'm sure that I'm speaking to the TV audience. Have you ever been? Uh, to the doctor's office or the hospital, the emergency room, and six weeks later gotten a bill and you can't believe how much it is. Uh, I think there was a, it's off the top of my head, but a fellow in Houston went for a pre-employment urine drug screen and it would cost him $17,000 or something like that. I mean, think about this. Yeah, somebody's nodding her head. Um, and so it's happened to me. Uh, and so I'm a doc. My wife's a doc. And so surprise medical billing is a reality of that family sitting around the kitchen table. We're working on a bipartisan basis to find a solution. Uh, there's a young woman in my office, very good, Mary Moody. She's working with stakeholders, both from other offices as well as from the hospitals, insurers, small businesses, and uh, doctors to try and come to a solution. Uh, the nice thing is that all agree the patient should not be the leverage point. So right now the patient is the leverage point. Oh, we're going to try and get $17,000 of you unless your insurance pays. They all agree it should not be. How we get beyond that, there's still a little bit of back and forth. Working very well with uh, Maggie Hassan, Michael Bennett, Jackie Rosen on the other side of the aisle and people on my side of the aisle, uh, very well with those folks. And I think we'll have uh, something to submit. What is this? April, by the end of this coming month. By the end of the month. I think so. Okay. And end of, is the day the first? Right. Today is May 1, yeah. Uh, yeah, so end of this month. Okay, okay, great. Um, and one other topic that you and I have talked about a lot before, uh, paid parental leave, which mm -hmm. you've talked about why it is a healthcare issue for you as a physician. Um, and you announced just about a month ago that you were working on the first bipartisan proposal um, with Senator Cinema, And I was hoping that you might have an update for us today on how that, um, how the negotiations are going and, and how whether you think, you know, looking at Social Security as a potential mechanism for um, how this might work is something you're considering? I, I, well, well, first, it is, a, it is a kitchen table issue mm -hmm. for that family. And for those who are not familiar with the issue, if, you have, if you're in $70,000 and above, you typically have paid family or parental leave, even if it's called something else. Less than 70K, it's, it's, it's less common. And so the issue is how do you give a certain amount of time allowing a parent to take time off, particularly important for the mother as she bonds, hopefully as breastfeeding, which is good both for the mother as well as for the child, uh, but certainly a parent having the ability to watch her child or his child over the first few weeks of, of life, and then allow the employee to go back to the employer. So the employer does not lose that kind of training that she or he has invested in the employee, but the employee comes back. So we are looking at ways we could perhaps do this through maybe short-term disability in the SSDI program. Um, you'd pop on, you'd pop off. That's modeled after the private sector. You can buy short-term disability policies, which include uh, paid parental leave. So again, if it's worked in the private sector, maybe we should do it as well. Uh, I personally strongly oppose increasing the payroll tax, which the left is suggesting. One, it's regressive. Uh, so that family sitting around the kitchen table takes a particular bite on it. Secondly, uh, 
uh, our Social Security and Medicare trust funds are going bankrupt. And so if we raise the payroll tax to pay for something else, does that uh, eliminate room to do something in the future to bail out a a, a Medicare fund that's going bankrupt in seven years, as an example. Uh, so, so I don't want to do that. So for a variety of reasons, I don't think that's the way to go. But I'm so pleased that Senator Sinema is working with us on this. So pleased. Clearly it's a boost. Uh, Ivanka Trump is very invested in our product, which brings the president on board. So I do think we have the elements to get something through. All right, great. Well, I know we're out of time. We really appreciate you um, speaking with us today and answering our questions. I know that you always make yourself very available in the hallways to talk to reporters and all that, so that makes my job easier, and I appreciate that. Well, thank you. Yes, thank you, sir. So for our next program, um, we have uh, Carrie Wade coming up, who's a senior fellow and policy director at the R Street Institute. Um, and we have David Levy, who's a professor at Georgetown University School of Medicine, and Clive Bates, who is director at Counterfactual UK, and they'll be discussing the future of harm reduction in health. Thank you. Some of you might find it odd that e-cigarettes are a topic and an event titled Examining Healthcare, but I ask you to consider that cigarettes, that e-cigarettes have an incredible potential to improve the lives and quality of health of smokers. Like condoms are effective to prevent STIs, the spread of STIs and opioid substitution therapies help people manage opioid addiction. E-cigarettes have proven effective in helping smokers move away from products that kill, namely cigarettes. Now, e-cigarettes are other emerging technologies um, that I can now name by name because ICOS was the first heat-not-burn product approved by the FDA yesterday, um, are not meant to replace prevention programs or laws that aim to keep kids from starting smoking or vaping, but we already know that both harm reduction and prevention programs can work together to improve public health. In fact, when it comes to alternative products like Snooze, which is a smokeless product, e-cigarettes or other emerging technologies we have seen positive results here in the United States and in other countries like Japan, Sweden, and England. In the U.S. and England, e-cigarettes are quickly becoming the preferred and even more effective method of smoking cessation, outpacing other nicotine replacements such as um, patch or gum. Sweden has the lowest smoking rate in the EU, below 5%, and not coincidentally, the lowest rate of smoking or tobacco-related illnesses. This is thought to be primarily because snus is out is replacing smoking. And over the last five years, combustible cigarette sales have dropped dramatically in Japan with heat not burn products becoming more popular. I'm aware that like other forms of harm reduction programs that came before e-cigarettes, e-cigarettes are controversial and may, many of us have specific concerns regarding youth use or long-term effects. Many people and probably many in this room think it's inappropriate to applaud the emergence of new products that keep people hooked but harm reduction realizes that abstinence doesn't work for everyone in many populations, such as those who are less educated, those with less income, and those with mental illness, are at an increased risk of smoking and an increased, increased 
and suffer more of, than their wealthy counterparts from resultant smoking-related diseases. If abstinence-only policies worked, we wouldn't be here. But when nearly half a million Americans die a year from smoking-related illnesses, nothing should be off the table. Joining me today are David Levy and Clive Bates. David Levy is a professor at Georgetown University School of Medicine, specializing in population health. He developed a SimSmoke tobacco policy simulation model, which predicts the effects of tobacco policies such as tax increases, smoke-free air laws, and media campaigns. He's also a PI at the University of Michigan Center for Assessment of Tobacco Impact. Sorry, I'm going to get this wrong. It's a lot of words. For the Public Health Impact of Tobacco Regulations, which is part of the NIH and FDA's Tobacco Center of Regulatory Science. Clive Bates is the Director of Counterfactual, a consulting and advocacy project practice and based in the UK. From 1997 to 2003, he was the Director of United Kingdom's Action on Smoking and Health. In 2003, he joined Prime Minister Tony Blair's Strategy Unit as civil servant and worked in several roles in the public health in the public sector in the UK and for the United Nations in Sudan. Together, we will discuss the impacts of e-cigarettes on youth and adults and what appropriate regulations may look like. Then we'll have some time for some questions. Thank you. So let's start with youth. Um, we've heard a lot in the recent months about the youth epidemic, strictly defined um, in public health. An epidemic is the occurrence of more cases of a disease or outcomes that would be expected in a community or region during given time period. The monitoring the future data from 2018 showed that there's a 20, that 28, sorry, 20.8% of high school students surveyed had used an e-cigarette in the last 30 days. And of that group, 27.7% of these students used on more than 20 days, translating to 5% of regular use among high school students. And compare this to smoking, where daily smoking rates of combustible cigarettes among 12th graders is about 4%. Uh, David Levy has recently had a paper that out that the R Street Institute responded to um, and reviewed. It suggested that e-cigarettes have a role in displacing combustible use in adolescence. Can you give us a bit more detail on this? Sure. Um, before I get into the rather obscure world of modeling, let me just uh, give a little bit of background. Youth smoking rates have been coming down over the last 25 years. They've been coming down fairly slowly. In the last 10 years, what we've seen is more multi-product use. In other words, those people who smoke cigarettes are, have been using other products like smokeless and so on. Now, um, in the last five years, uh, we've seen e-cigarettes really come onto the scene. E-cigarettes have been aptly referred to as a disruptive technology, and they're disruptive because they provide a real alternative to smoking. That is, we now have a product out there that really is a good substitute for cigarettes. Not only is it a good substitute, more importantly, the risks are much less. Uh, in my view, the best reviews find that the risks of e-cigarettes are about 5% those of cigarettes. That's one twentieth. That's big. That's really big. Okay, so in terms of modeling, modeling is difficult in a world where there's major changes because you really don't have good data yet. You know, it takes a while till you could really understand things. 
So the kind of model I did was I tried to look at what would be reasonable estimates. And I tried to distinguish a couple things. What's important in modeling the effects is what would people have done in the absence of that technology? In other words, would they have smoked? You know, because if there's benefits, then the benefits would come from people, instead of using cigarettes, use e-cigarettes instead, or maybe even don't use either of the two products. That's a benefit. The other concern that's been raised, however, is that e-cigarettes could be a gateway into smoking and thereby increase smoking. So I try to distinguish that role as well as get at what is regular use because that's really what's important from a public health impact. Looking at a broad range of parameters, what I found was under what I would consider a reasonable set of parameters that e-cigarettes are leading to a gateway out of smoking. That is, they're providing public health benefits. Um, this study that you did, I just want to be clear that this refers to smoking rates um, among 12th graders, correct? Well, yeah, we, we, we did it for several groups. We focused on yeah, 12th graders because that's an age at which, you know, the smoking patterns are more well-established. Okay, and that the two main takeaways from your study, I when our street uh, reviewed this study, we our two main takeaways are that e-cigarettes are displacing smoking, um, combustible smoking in youth, and I want to clarify is that accurate? That's accurate. Again, it's based on parameters that are not firmly established yet. We won't know you know, how, how these things work out for years. And they're, they're changing. They've changed in recent years with Juul coming onto the market. But I tried to come up with parameters that I thought were reasonable and uh, covered the range of people's beliefs on what might occur. Right. Clive, I have a question for you. In light of this um, youth epidemic and or so-called I don't mean to say so-called, sorry, but youth epidemic um, rhetoric and the possibility that this might be displacing smoking and youth, do you think it's appropriate that the or useful for the FDA to focus on youth e-cigarette use as a, solely a negative versus a positive? What I mean by that is to not acknowledge that perhaps there might be benefits. Do you think this is um, appropriate or useful? Yeah. I, th I think FDA has to focus on the... Um, system as it is you know they have to deal with the world as it is and it isn't only uh you know nicotine naive never smoking youth taking up jewel and you know frightening their parents it isn't only that um so you have um adolescents who smoke and i mean there's around 14 percent uh, in the last uh, survey 14 percent of high school students smoke something um so that's um what happens when they start to have access to e-cigarettes? Do they get some of the same benefits that adults get? Then you have about 35 million adults who smoke regularly in the United States. E-cigarettes uh, and these you know, other vaping products can intervene and change those behaviors in a way that's very beneficial. So I don't think they should ignore um, the impact on youth. They should put it in context. And there are, there are potential benefits to young people, adolescents who smoke, by either, either because 
they will never initiate on smoking and they'll start vaping instead, people who would otherwise have smoked, or because they use e-cigarettes or Juul to switch away from smoking over time. And also over time, uh, kids who smoke and have no intention of ever vaping at present, maybe in 10 years' time, they'll have vaping products available to switch before most of the damage to health has accumulated. If you, if you quit smoking before the age of about 35, you avoid almost all of the long-term uh, impact of you know, the cancer, heart disease, respiratory illness. You avoid almost all of the impact of that. So even if kids are determined to smoke now, they have an option to switch back before they're 35. And what I, what I would like to see is FDA, CDC, the Surgeon General, focusing on the whole, all of these patterns of behavior and recognizing that for everyone, everyone where there's a disbenefit, there are others with very significant benefits. Now, again, the relative risk thing is very important. And David uses that 5% number, and I agree with that. It's a reasonable estimate. Um, you get one additional uh, vapor who would never have vaped. That's, you, you know, that's kind of one person getting, uh, you know, one twentieth the harm of a smoker. But you introduce a policy, like you ban flavors or you make the products more difficult to get or you tax them, you make them more difficult to use. There's the potential there for unintended consequences, which could increase the number of people who are smoking compared to not having that policy intervention. The problem with that, one extra smoker is 20 times the risk involved. So you should be really very careful about intervening in this marketplace without really understanding the effect that it has on smoking behavior. Um, so I, I, I'm, I would like to see a more nuanced approach from FDA rather than just this, oh, look, there's 20% of, uh, of, of teenagers are smoking. It's an epidemic. It's a crisis. Something must be done. It's much more subtle than that. When you go under, underneath the headline figures, there's a lot more things in play. Well, one thing I've noticed from the FDA and um, other public health agencies and public health academics is the, the concern that this will eventually lead to increased combustible use. Um, so one of my questions, I have a couple questions on that. One is what has happened since the last, um, you know, what's happened since this study has, hap has been published that was about six months ago, and I know that a lot of this data happened was gathered before then. So, what what's the trajectory now? Well, needless to say, my modeling study generated a fair amount of controversy. So, we we don't have definitive data yet. But what I did is I went and I looked at youth smoking rates, and I very carefully I used very many different methods. I looked at the long term trend before vaping came onto the scene and looked at what happened since then. Um, and what I saw was the downward trend in youth smoking was four times as great. In other words, there were much more people smoking. I called that paper a reality check. I have I, enjoyed the paper, so you didn't get much flag from me. Um, and then another one, and just like on a purely philosophical level, what are your thoughts, Clive, what are your thoughts this will translate to increased combustible use in adulthood? I mean, you sort of addressed it, but... Yeah, well, I mean, I did a, like, much more sort of idiots um, uh, kind of equivalent of David's very refined mathematical paper, which was just to draw the trend lines 
uh, on the monitoring the future data, which is a University of Michigan data set. And if you just draw the trend lines uh, post-2010 and pre-2010 for 12th grade smoking, the gradient is four times steeper for past 30-day smoking and three times steeper for daily smoking. And that's for 12th graders. Okay, so there is definitely something going on. It's it's very difficult. I mean, it's theoretically possible that these declines would be even faster. You know, there's a mystery gateway effect would be somehow, uh, you, you know, has, has slowed the rate of decline. But it's just very hard to construct a theory as to why that should be. And this is the point, I think. You cannot consider vaping. Uh, in isolation without considering its interaction with smoking, including among adults and including amongst adolescents. And, and until you can get to that more new, it's, and of course it's, it's very difficult to talk about this in politics and in the media because it's a much more complicated story. But until you can understand those interactions and place appropriate value on reductions in smoking, which is very high because smoking is much more dangerous, then you're not really dealing with the full picture and you're probably not making the sensible policies. So moving on to adult use and the potential benefits for um, e-cigarette use. David Levy also, Levy, Levy, sorry. (laughs) I hear it so many different ways. Um, He also had a paper that was um, published about two years ago examining the potential lives saved on e-cigarette use, and as I understand it, it's um, scenario. There's, if in the next ten years, a certain percentage of sm- current smokers switch to vaping, within the next one hundred years, six million lives will be um, saved from smoking-related illnesses and deaths. Uh, I'm just wondering where this number comes from, and you know. It, is it is it a definite replacement from combustible cigarettes to e-cigarette, or is there a just natural quitting behaviors uh, accounted for in that? Well, to answer your um, last question first, what ultimately, from a public health view, provides the real benefits is if smokers switch completely to e-cigarettes. Okay, in other words, dual use may have some advantages because it reduces the number uh, that is dual use of cigarettes and vaping. Um, probably has some advantages because it reduces the number of cigarettes smoked. But it's pro- it probably pales in comparison to if a person completely switches to e-cigarettes. In my view, that should be the goal. Um, and so this paper looked at that kind of effect. Um, in addition, I've, uh, and, and there it was in a hypothetical, what would happen if people switched? I've also done modeling that looks at and tries to uh, predict as best we can, based on the data, what is happening in terms of smokers. And uh, again, it was the same kind of analysis as youth. You know, I, 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 and here, though, I, I, the important thing to distinguish is would the smoker have quit in the absence of cigarettes? And the important thing to recognize now, especially, not not so much 20 years ago, but now, the people who are likely to quit have already quit. They've used pharmacotherapy and quit or used other means and quit. The people that are still smokers, I think, can aptly be called hardcore smokers. 
And so it becomes important to provide a substitute. And many of those are poor people also. You know, smoking, as, as Carrie mentioned, is, is, is much higher among the lower income segments. Okay, so again, we did the same kind of analysis. And what we found is under a broad range of conditions, we, again, we tried to look at the reasonable um, set of conditions, we found that e-cigarettes is improving the ability of smokers to quit. And again, again, I did an empirical analysis. You know, you could do models and, you know, it's easy to come up with different kinds of results. But I've done an empirical analysis and what I found is that e-cigarettes have been used to help people quit. And I'd like to point out since then, there's been a number of studies done and they found similar or even stronger results. And I think it's, it's fairly widely accepted now in the public health community that e-cigarettes have been very helpful in getting smokers to quit smoking cigarettes. Right. So we've seen, I mean, you, you've predicted that in 100 years from now, you see a certain amount of uh, lives saved from smoking related illnesses. What about sooner than that? Do you have a prediction of how soon you could see population level benefits from short, short term outcomes? Well, it, it, it's very hard to predict that. But um, what I would say is e-cigarettes does two things. One, it provides a substitute for cigarettes. But maybe even more importantly, it provides a, what I would call even a stronger reason for policies directed at cigarette use. Cigarette use is the culprit. You know, that's where the big health effects are. So now I think we can focus on reducing cigarette use because there is a viable alternative out there. Great. And before I open this up to questions, I just have uh, my last question for Clive, which is he's worked internationally. He's um, worked on tobacco harm reduction and tobacco control issues in Asia, um, North America, Europe, Africa, Australia. Did I miss any other continents? <laughs> Antarctica, maybe. Um, <laughs> so what do you think I've mentioned in my introduction that there's a few significant examples um, in Sweden, UK, and Japan, for instance. But what can the U.S. learn from other countries and do better at? And what are model countries in your vision? Well, uh, I think the number one lesson is focus on harm. You know, it, the, the, the job in public health is to try to reduce rates of really nasty, painful, debilitating diseases, cancer, cardiovascular disease, respiratory illness, stroke, and so on. To me, it's a second-order issue, third-order issue to say, oh, we must stop people using nicotine. You know, I mean, alcohol is widely used in society. We don't try and stop people using alcohol. We stop them trying to abuse it or harm themselves with it. We need a similar sort of philosophy here. Focus on the harm, not necessarily the underlying substance use. So in England, uh, which I think is probably the best comparator example for the United States, taken a completely different approach, to be honest. Um, so the equivalent of CDC in England, which is Public Health England, actually advertises the use of e-cigarettes on television as a means for um, stopping smoking. Okay, they're very boring, staid adverts aimed at middle-aged people, um, and those middle-aged people are the people at greatest risk. 
they are the, they are the people on the cusp of developing these serious diseases, cancer, heart disease, and so on. So the target audience is for them. Um, also, the main uh, medical organizations, the main activist organizations, all behind this harm reduction strategy because I think they're focused on the right thing. We don't have uh, a pronounced youth vaping problem, uh, so that does make it easier, and I accept, accept this large increase over the last year or so in the United States is a political problem, if not a public health problem. Um, but generally, we've had a positive attitude for, from it. Groups like the Royal College of Physicians, Public Health England, many of the Heart can, Cancer Research UK are all broadly in favour of this strategy because they think it works. And they are right. We have now around over 3 million uh, vapors in the, in the UK and around 7 million smokers. Vaping is through, you know, the pure action of market forces for the most part. Vaping is eating away into the smoking franchise. More and more people are switching and finding that they're happy to switch and that they get, they get immediate benefits actually, welfare benefits, not necessarily, you not necessarily turn up in the cancer figures straight away. And they're doing that because the atmosphere is more supportive. And to the, to be honest, to the extent that we have a break on that, it's often, it's either poorly designed European Union regulation. So for example, we can't get the same jewel products in, in, in England that you can get in the United States. And those jewel products have been fantastically successful with adults in the United States. An amazing American success story, but European regulation prevents the identical products being sold in the European Union. Um, but generally, where we have discretion in England, it's been exercised. So we don't have taxes. We, we don't have uh, indoor vaping bans. We have constructive, positive communications about the relative risk using that 5% number. And all of that, I think, has given the smoking public more confidence to try these things. Um, we are often, unfortunately, hurt by uh, kind of contagion from the United States. We often get alarmist stories coming out of American universities and American academic activists saying that these products are more harmful or as harmful as smoking. It's completely untrue, but it affects the perceptions that we have in the UK so that we're also slightly held back by that. But for the most part, I think we're doing what we can to try to get this to be a, a sort of technology-based disruption of the cigarette trade and to try to use technology, this technology or innovation to do away with the main diseases that we have seen from smoking. And I think it's working. Thank you. I, I would agree. Um, well, we have about five minutes left if anybody has any questions. I'll ask. somebody else has to breathe or not but uh, I'm just wondering if, if that's been an issue that a person can vape in public and and other and it doesn't affect the air that others have to breathe you know and, and whether the anti-vape laws in, in the public are uh, truly uh, necessary thanks it yeah but clearly it clearly does affect the air 
Um, it, it, you're breathing out something that is, uh, uh, you're breathing out, you're breathing out an aerolyzed, uh, liquid that contains flavorants and so on. And if you've ever been in a room, uh, with somebody vaping, it creates a, a sort of mildly aromatic smell. Um, it is completely different to the smoke that is breathed out, either both, either breathed out by a smoker or coming from the tip of a cigarette, which, um, contains, you know, substantial amount of particulate matter and very toxic chemicals inside the in inside the smoke so much more bizarre, uh, benign aerosol um, so generally it generally the the approach is certainly taken in the UK is to say well we ban smoking in public places um, in closed public places because this creates a material hazard to bystanders okay um, it's the scientific assessment in, in the UK and actually by some of the academics in the United States is that it's very difficult to see any material hazard from uh, aerolyzed uh, vapor um, just just because it's a relatively benign substance. doesn't mean it's undetectable or it's, you know, like fresh air or water vapor. It's just very hard to see any material uh, hazard from it. So the, the appropriate approach is, I don't think, is to say, um, you know, you should be able to vape anywhere. The question is, who decides? And with smoking bans, essentially the state takes it upon itself to decide because there's a material hazard and it acts to protect bystanders. In a situation where there isn't a material hazard, but the issues are to do with inconvenience, nuisance, uh, good manners, personal taste, and so on, we think it's more appropriate that the owner uh, or manager of the property should make a decision and inform users as to what the policy is inside the place. Now, many places would ban vaping, but if you want to have a bar that has uh, vaping or you want to have a restaurant that allows it for some reason or you want a hotel that allows it in the bar but not in the restaurant or the rooms, then they would be able to make that policy according to the needs of the uh, their clientele and make the judgments about what is right Um and that, and you can only justify the state intervening to override that when there's a material hazard. So that's the philosophical underpinning, at least in England. And the way I would put it is this way. In, in cigarettes, the least nasty aspect of it, nasty from the point of view of health, is probably the nicotine. It's the other stuff that's right. really, really nasty. Right. So when people breathe out you know, their, their vape intake and they breathe it out, what they're breathing out is much, much less nasty. And, and that's the bottom line. Hi, thank you for this panel. Um, a couple of weeks ago, the FDA came out with um, speculations concerning seizures mm -hmm. and how vaping causes seizures. What should we make of that? And they themselves said that it wasn't really founded in reality. Like there were only 35 cases over nine years, including people that were using drugs and other products. So what should we make of that? What do you um, mean? Yeah, no, I think Clive, he's responded in depth to this. <laughs> <laughs> I, frankly, I was appalled by that. Um, obviously, every everybody, every drug, everybody's trying to monitor adverse events, okay? And, you know, you see adverse events, people who are vapors will have seizures. So if you take the, if you take the intersection of the population who vape in the United States and the population who, um, uh, have epilepsy 
and you assume that there's no kind of bias, they're just sort of randomly distributed, then you'd expect about 90,000 vapors to be also sufferers from epilepsy. And over, I think it was nine years, FDA had recorded 35 instances of um, seizures amongst people vaping. So you are a very, very long way from being able to detect a signal in the noise that you would expect just from the, you know, just like the random play of a population of 90,000 people who are prone to seizures. That doesn't mean you should ignore it. Um, you know, it's perfectly legitimate to say, well, let, let's see if there is a pattern here. It's definitely not established in the advert event, adverse event data, but maybe we need to drill deeper. What you don't do and what you shouldn't do is what FDA did, which is the top guy, Gottlieb, goes out, makes a huge statement. It's all over the media. Of course, it's misunderstood by nearly everybody and not the fault of journalists, in my view, the fault of FDA for the way they spun it. And suddenly worldwide, including in the UK, um, to my great annoyance, we're seeing stories about how vaping causes seizures. Now, kind of buried, you know, on page 94 of uh, Gottlieb's statement, there is a, there was a statement saying, of course, we don't know if any of this is causal, which is actually the, basically the only reliable thing that was said in that, in that statement. There was also, I'm afraid to say, I did have a look at some of the adverse event reports that have been used. And there were signs of advocacy behavior in there. There were people making long, sort of impassioned statements about Juul uh, in the context of this. And that rang an alarm bell for me, that whether people were trying to... Because these, these were from users, stroke-concerned citizens. They weren't from medical professionals, these things. So I was concerned that buried in there somewhere, there might be some tactical behavior going on. But the right thing for FDA to have done would have been to conduct a quiet internal investigation into these. And then if there was sort of probable or even possible cause, start to go more public and investigate it. Instead, they went to volume 11 on day one. And that was, in my view, absolutely reprehensible behavior from them. One thing I always um, think about or thought about when this uh, report came out is when we hear about explosions from e-cigarettes explosions um it's always sorry i was gonna make an unintended pun there but um you know it's very scary and you hear about it and it's quite impactful but when we have to think about harm reduction we think about it in comparison to the worst health outcome which is cigarettes and when you're comparing something like e-cigarette explosions to house fires which is i think in 10 years there were about 200 e-cigarette explosions that uh, less than 20 of them actually incurred damage to the human um, being. There's 7,600 house fires that are cigarette, um, that are, you know, caused by cigarettes a year. So I, I always, you know, when you think about seizure data or house or com battery explosions and things like that, I always think, you know, it's important to put it in perspective. Um, you had a question? Hi, uh, Jacob James Rich from Reason Foundation. It seems like Tobacco 21 legislation is inevitable. Both Mitch McConnell and Altria, the biggest tobacco company, support the legislation. Concerns about 18-year-old high school students diverting their legally purchased cigarettes and vaping mechanisms to minors seems founded. However, raising the drinking age to 21 has had disastrous public, I'm sorry, disastrous public health consequences for those between the ages of 18 and 20. So considering the University of Michigan estimates about 11,000 youth won't start smoking in Michigan due to increasing the tobacco age to 21, 
What do you think are the broad public health implications of Tobacco 21, and should we endorse it? You go, Dick. Clive and I might have uh, different (laughs) views on this one. uh, Let me warn you ahead of time. I, I think it's a good idea, and it's a good idea for two reasons, in my view. Youth do not always make the best health decisions. So to the extent that we could put off them engaging in a habit that has lifetime consequences, that is a good thing. Okay? And what, and, and, uh, very careful analysis has been done that indicates, in my view, that that would have major public health benefits. I would add the other reason, you know, now, even if you didn't support it with cigarettes and that kind of thing, now there is a focus on youth vaping. And um, I would argue, and, and here Clive and I would agree, it's it's much exaggerated. But one of the ways to deal with that is to raise the age to 21. It's not going to solve the problem. But it's going to reduce the number of people that vape and potentially smoke. So for that reason, I, I, I supported it back then. I support it even more strongly now. Um, just very briefly, I, I, one thing I worry about is, is the, the young smokers, uh, young adult smokers, people who have emerged from teenage years with a smoking habit, in a sense, that policy denies them access to something that would help them um, stop smoking. So you have to, again, it's always, for me, looking at the unintended consequences of measures like this. Having said that, the intensity of the debate in the United States about vaping is so strong now. And, you know, the call is something must be done. This is something, then maybe it should be done. I don't know. Uh, but I ha- there's a lot of reasons to be concerned, not so much on the tobacco, on the smoking side, from applying it to vaping, potential unintended consequences could be harmful. But then all of this regulation that's coming in has potentially harmful unintended consequences. So it's no different to banning flavors or retail restrictions or any of those measures either. All right. Thank you. I think um, a, a strong yes and an I don't know is a good way to end. <laughs> so I'd, like to thank, to yes, I'd like to thank David Levy and Clive Bates for joining us today. Thank you. Um, for those of just tuning in, I'm Kimberly Leonard, Senior Healthcare Reporter for the Washington Examiner. And uh, for our next panel, we're having Senator Doug Jones join us, a Democrat from Alabama. And um, we'll be talking about a uh, range of topics from uh, Medicaid expansion in the state to uh, his work on the HELP Committee and um, also uh, having to – he's – haven't been in Congress very long, but he is uh, going to tell us a little bit about um, his efforts on rural health care as well. Um, Senator, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you.
Good to see you. Nice to see you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah. And um, I hope you don't mind. I know we're here to talk healthcare, but I was hoping to uh, dive into politics with our first question. Oh, I thought you were going to talk about <laughs> college football. That's, that's... I can't talk about that. I don't know sports, but um, we. So we reported at the Washington Examiner that um, that uh, Roy Moore plans to run again. And uh, how do you feel about a, a possible matchup again? You know, I, I think he. Uh, I think he's. One of those guys that just can't help himself. So I'm ready for whoever ends up being the, the nominee. We're off and running. We're doing everything that we can to make sure the people of Alabama know that I'm doing exactly what I said I would do, and that's have their back and work on things. So um, we'll let them uh, – I'll let those folks fight it out, and we'll just see how it goes. All right. And um, to what extent do you think uh, health care will play in uh, your reelection campaign? I think it will play a big role. It did last time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the – um, 2017 election campaign, at least during the primary, was that summer of 2017. It was all about repeal and replace. And people in Alabama, who uh, a lot of whom suffer from pre-existing conditions, a lot of whom didn't have health care, a lot of whom did not have good health care, uh, all of a sudden started looking at this not from a political angle but from uh, or as a Republican and Democrat angle but from a personal angle. So I think they have focused on that, and I think they continue to focus on it. You mentioned rural health a little bit. I think as we have more hospitals closed in Alabama and health care gets more scarce in our rural parts of the state, folks are going to be thinking about it. I think it's probably going to end up being, um, I won't say the number one issue, but it's going to be real close. Mm-hmm. And um, mm-hmm. so Alabama is pretty interesting with, uh, you know, heading into the election because obviously sort of at the backdrop of this 2020 election is the fact that the Trump administration has signed on to uh, the lawsuit that seeks to invalidate the Affordable Care Act. And they've changed their position from uh, having the courts invalidate only the pre-existing conditions rules to invalidating the entire law. Um, one of the things, though, in Alabama is that your uh, state attorney general is has signed on to this yeah, lawsuit. Right. So uh, what conversations do you have then at the state level about, you know, what their reasons are for wanting this and, um, you know, why you believe that that's I the incorrect I haven't had any conversations about them. They don't ask me about it, and if they did, I would tell them. I think it's a dumb thing to do. I mean, it is if, if that law gets completely invalidated, it's going to upend health care as we know it. People in Alabama are going to lose their coverage. Uh, and there are ways that I think that we can work to try to tweak and fix and do things to try to bring health care costs down, to try to bring insurance costs down, to give everybody uh, some access, including expanding Medicaid. Uh, I just think it's the wrong way to approach this. Um, I've said that publicly. Um, they d- have not asked my opinion. I think they know it uh, in terms of whether or not they should pursue this lawsuit. I'd like to see them defending the people that have these conditions rather than just trying to take away their health care. Mm-hmm. Uh, yesterday, the president uh, told Democratic leaders that he would like to see uh, Congress take another swing at Alexander Murray, uh, which was the legislation that would have helped to uh, stabilize the Affordable Care Act um, by adding more flexibility to what states were allowed to do and also um, injecting funding into the marketplace so that people's premiums could sure. go down. There was an impasse over uh, the Hyde Amendment and right. um Speaking with Senator Cassidy earlier, it doesn't seem as though that's something that can really, uh, you know, that still remains an impasse. What do you think? And what did you think of when you read about the president's comments yesterday? Well, I, th- I think it's it's worth a, a taking a look at. I, I, unfortunately, the Hyde Amendment is a, an emotional issue, and it gets people uh, going to their corners, uh, and that's unfortunate. I think if we can get past that, you know, the Hyde Amendment has been in 
um, has been in place for a long time, and it's going to stay there. I think it has a, a fair amount of, of support of, on a, a bipartisan basis. Um, we need to get we need to take issues like that kind of over to the side and focus on the issues of health care uh, in general and not, you know, every every time that that issue comes up, <clears throat> people truly just go to their corners. And that's unfortunate because it will bog down everything else. I'd like to see discussions on that. I think there's some opportunities um, in the Congress to do some things to help people like that if we can just get the emotional issues off to the off the side. So would you vote for an Alexander Murray bill that still contains the Hyde Amendment? I would. You would. I would. You would. Um, and the, um, you know, because one of the sore spots for Republicans for a long time has been that the uh, language about abortion with the Affordable Care Act isn't as strong as the Hyde Amendment. It's essentially held together with an executive order. So that was kind of a way for Republicans to, you know, take another swing at the issue. And it sounds like you think there's. Well, I, you know, look, I I have uh, views on, on a lot of different issues, but I think the Hyde Amendment has been in place. It's been in place for a reason, and it's an emotional issue, and I think it needs to – from my perspective, I believe it, it, it is there. It needs to stay in place. I would like to see that off the table, and let's talk about health care in general, and let's see what we can do to help people. Mm-hmm. That's just it, – you know, it's, it's easier for me to say that. Uh, then do it because it has become such an issue that people just, as I said, go to go to their corners. And, and, and we've just got to figure out ways that we can have common dialogue together and try to find that common ground. And if we can't find common ground on that issue, let's just move it off and keep it where it is and let's do something about health care and health care premiums. Mm-hmm. The Democratic Party uh, overall calls for a repeal of the Hyde Amendment. Uh, do you agree with that stance? I, 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 I said before, uh, and I've, I think since I've gotten up here and looked at this and seen uh, all the issues, I, I don't think that that's necessary uh, at this point. I think it has, it has worked. Uh, I know that there are a lot of people in the Democratic Party that would like to see uh, that repealed, but I, I, just, I just think that right now that was one of those issues that people did find some common ground on, uh, and it, it was satisfactory for a long time. Let's keep that in place, and let's focus on the issues that we can agree on. That is just one of those hot-button issues. Too often we try to focus on those issues, and that gets all the media play. That gets all the attention, and it, it really takes away from the real issues about pre-existing conditions and health care in general, infant mortality, maternal mortality. Those are the issues that I'm focusing on. Right, and we're going to talk about those in just a minute. I do want to ask one more question about abortion, um, just because it, it will play very heavily in 2020, um, and because it is, you know, where a lot of Congress is kind of focused. It seems as though, you know, whenever I'm covering health care, that always tends to enter the debate. Um, and um, you split with your party um, on the 20-week abortion ban. Um, or I'm sorry, on the Born Alive bill, on the Born Alive bill, um, but not on the 20-week ban. Right. And uh, I was hoping that you could clarify your stance on the. Well, I, I just think on the on the 20-week, I didn't. I don't think it, the science supports that. Uh, and I also thought there were so many restrictions that were put in that particular bill that it was make it totally ineffectual. I mean, it was completely ineffectual. Uh, on the SAS bill, I felt like that that was. I believe that every child should have the access to the to health care, regardless of the, those circumstances. And I moved on. What I really wish people would focus on, though, and I keep coming back to this, and I may be the only one in the Congress of the United States that wants to do this, but let's you know instead of focusing on the extremes on these issues, let's try to focus on things that we can agree on to try to get better health care, try to get things done, try to help these children once they're born, and let's do those things that people can agree on. Let's do more to get kids adopted. Let's do things that we can all agree on instead of just 
focusing so much on, on the various extremes. You mentioned maternal mortality. That's an issue I've covered a lot recently. Well, we're seeing a, an alarming rate of um, women, you know, either dying during childbirth or pregnancy or becoming disabled for a long period right. of time where they're essentially bedridden after giving birth. Um, what are you working on in that arena? Well, there's a couple of things uh, fit, uh, pending that I think that uh, will help. One, we're, we're sending some letters to make sure that programs at uh, HHS and other things are funded fully to look at, at maternal health. You know, infant mortality seems to have gotten all the attention in the last uh, uh, 20 years or so. Uh, Alabama in particular, we have a huge infant mortality rate. It's one of the highest in the nation, and we don't seem to be focusing on the, the best health care delivery uh, for women and children. But m- maternal mortality is a big issue. It particularly affects women of color. Uh, and those are things that we're trying to figure out how to best get uh, the research done, get good uh, health care outcomes. Y- you know, I go back, so many of the births in this country are, are Medicaid. And Alabama uh, is a very restrictive state on, on Medicaid. I wish we could expand Medicaid to try to get more and better health care coverage for some of those mothers. Rural health plays a part of that because health care delivery in Alabama in the rural areas is getting scarcer and scarcer. And we need to try to figure out everything that we can do uh, to try to make sure that we keep keep health care in those areas. So someone that's having a baby can get the uh, in a rural area can get them uh, care that they need just right down the street and not have to drive 50, 60 miles to Birmingham or one of the other uh, urban centers. You know, the Medicaid question is interesting, I know, because uh, about half of births are paid for by Medicaid, I believe, and um, women are only allowed to remain on Medicaid for 60 days after they give birth. You have a bill that would, um, so Alabama has not expanded Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act, and you have a bill that would allow states that joined later on to receive a 100% match at the start before that kind of amount really dwindles, because in 2020, uh, the federal government pays for 90% of that. And so um, tell me why you decided to uh, back that legislation well, or introduce the legislation. Yeah, well, you know, I, I, I just think it's important for states like Alabama uh, to, number one, to expand. And we're trying to give the incentive to do it, just like they, they did with the passage of the Affordable Care Act. You know, to give that three years of, of 100% reimbursement and step it up to the to the 90-10 so that that the uh, folks in the state and the in the areas can can do the things necessary to grow that economy to get it to where it's not going to cost the money. You know, in Alabama and all these states didn't expand Medicaid. They didn't do it. It was for two reasons. One that was a legitimate reason and one totally illegitimate. The illegitimate reason was because it was Obamacare. It was a political issue that everybody will tell you that. Everybody that has knows anything about uh, how they operate in Alabama and a lot of the other states, the 14 states that haven't expanded Medicaid, it was a political issue. But there was a legitimate concern about how much it would ultimately cost. Now we have all the anecdotal studies of states that have expanded Medicaid um, that show that it is not as expensive, that it creates better health outcomes for people in the state, which helps the overall economy of the estate. It brings in billions of dollars. It's helped jobs in these rural areas. Um, the healthcare industry in this country and in every state is one of the biggest industries going. And so it really helps the economy. So they really don't have that. And what I'm trying to, to do is to say, okay, forget the politics of the past. Let's look at where we are today and how we can get better health outcomes. And if the federal government can do this to help, we'll give you another shot. Um, for whatever reason, you didn't do it, but here's another shot. And, and hopefully we can get something done. I'd love to see that bill passed to give states like mine the incentive 
to, 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 to once again try that and be good stewards of the money and grow that economy in those three years so that ultimately we're going to have better health outcomes. You know, I saw a, a study recently. I was somewhere, and, and a, a doctor that I talked to sent me a uh, – it's a real medical journal, so about half of it I couldn't understand. But it was a study of, of, of folks who had been diagnosed with colorectal cancer in Kentucky and how the number of people and the number of, of deaths and the number of instances of serious colorectal cancer went down dramatically after they expanded Medicaid in Kentucky because more people were getting exams. More people were, had the ability to go to the doctor. I just think that the health outcomes would be tremendous if we can expand Medicaid. And quite frankly, I'm tired of our dollars going elsewhere. I'd like to see it come back to my people. Do um, So there are some states that joined later, yeah. and they didn't get the full match. Uh, how does it work for those states? I mean, are you getting some, wait a minute, that's not fair. We came later. We well, I think there would, there'd have to be a way to try to help those To be states. retroactive, yeah, maybe? To, yes, exactly. Okay. Yeah, there's got to be a way to help those states uh, to do that. You couldn't you couldn't have the, you know, like the, the, the notch babies. You couldn't do that to, to have them completely out in the cold. There'll have to be a way to try to work that through. So, um, you know, it, it does seem as though um, in your state the idea of expanding Medicaid is still controversial. If it was something they wanted to do with a work requirement or if they wanted to do a partial expansion, which means that if someone's making, you know, 100% of the federal poverty level, then they qualify as opposed to the 150 mm-hmm. level, is that something that you would yeah. support? You know, or look, just- I think any expansion – Alabama right now has the most restrictive Medicaid, and they need to loosen that up just a little bit. I think, you know, I'm certainly one that any expansion would be better than none. And so the thing that I worry about work requirements is if they put some work requirements in, I don't have a, a particular philosophical problem with that as long as it's, it doesn't knock somebody out. That's one of the problems that we've got with some of the work requirements and other programs that they put some work requirements to a point that it, it just is counterproductive. And so... I think that they can fashion that. I think some states have done some things like that. It's been successful. Let's just talk about it. For the first time in a long time now, uh, well, maybe for the first time ever, Alabama's seriously talking about it. They need to continue those discussions, work through those issues, come up with the ideas, find the common ground between folks. That's that's the whole issue of, of trying to do this. Get something done for the people of the state and do it in a way that people can be satisfied. So they are talking about it, and what, com- about is, it, yeah. what conversations have you had with governor about this? Well, I, it, it's been brief. I've talked to her staff just a, a little bit. They have contacted us. Uh, legislators are talking about it. I've talked to a number of the state legislators. Most of the ones that I've talked to are, are people that have been proponents for a long time. But if you see what's going on and you read the media and you see people are having discussions, there are what, what's especially interesting to me is to see former legislators former Republican legislators who fought it tooth and nail, who are now coming back and say, we made a mistake. Uh, and there's been a number of those things. And now you've also got the stakeholders, people, the Alabama Hospital Association has been leading the charge, other physician groups, other stakeholders, county commissioners, city councilmen, all are saying we're, we're seeing too many of our rural hospitals decline. And those rural hospitals depend on Medicaid. And the fact is people now are seeing Medicaid uh, as not an issue involving them and other people and poor people. They're seeing it as us. For those people in rural areas that are not on Medicaid and won't benefit personally from a Medicaid expansion, they're seeing their hospitals close because they can't get those Medicaid dollars. So it's affecting their ability to get good health care simply because those hospitals are closing. So people are beginning to see this as an us issue and not just a them issue looking at poor people.
There was a recent study that showed that states that expanded Medicaid and states that did not had similar hospital closure issues. What do you think are some of the other problems that are leading to, um, you know, so many hospitals shutting their doors? Well, I think that the high cost and the inability to afford the high cost, there's all manner. It's a very complicated system. In Alabama, one of the issues has always been the Medicare wage index. Hmm. Uh, We are at the very bottom of the heap when it comes to reimbursements on Medicare. It's like 67 cents or something like that. Uh, Recently, CMS has um, proposed some new rules or alternative rules that will help that situation and bring Alabama's Medicare reimbursement up. That that, that's a game changer. I mean, that is a really big deal, and we're trying to get people to comment on that, not from the standpoint of dollars and cents, but for health outcomes. So I think that that's part of it, at least in my state. That's a that's a part of it as well. Um, so we'll see. It's a it's a combination of issues. I think as as we go forward, uh, we've got to have better management. We've got to look at lowering health care costs. I'm sure Senator Cassidy talked about that a little bit earlier today with lowering prescription drug costs, being a little bit more transparent in costs, those kind of things that we just need to, need to kind of lower the cost. And I think that'll help. And um, do you, uh, of the bills that are kind of out there with um, lowering prescription drug costs, are there any that um, you think could potentially advance? You know, I, we're looking at all of those. We talked to Secretary Azar about it. I know the administration is, it, this is really important uh, for Secretary Azar and the, and, and the president. Uh, and there are some really, uh, I think, interesting proposals out there with lowering the cost, being transparent, working to make sure that the middlemen kind of either get cut out or, or at least marginalized. There's a lot of things I think that can be done. There's a lot of proposals out there. I think we're still a little early in the process of looking at all the specifics. And the Trump administration has several of its own proposals. Yes. Um, and you were talking about the middleman proposal as well as, uh, you know, they have another that we're expecting yep. kind of any day regarding uh, posting drug prices on TV ads. What do you yep. think of some no, of those I think ideas? that those are good proposals. I really applaud the administration's effort in trying to do that. Um, you know, I've, I've had a number of these conversations with Secretary Azar about it. When he first came in to visit me last year, when his nomination was pending, it's the kind of thing that we talked about. And I asked him, I was, I was very candid. You know, I said, he came from the pharmaceutical industry. I said, are you the one that can be able to do this? Um, there's a lot of skepticism. And he said, I think I'm the best person to be able to do it because I know, do know the industry. I know where the where, where it is. And so I'm taking him at his word. And I think some of those proposals are very good. We're looking at them in, in detail. This is, again, these are, this is all a complicated mess uh, right now. So we're looking at all of those, but I really applaud their efforts at doing that. And I think that the other thing that they're doing, I think that they're working with the members of Congress to try to get their input and to talk about it. That's one, that is one of those areas, just like the opioid crisis bill last year, where they're seeking input from all sides uh, and, and getting a, a good view of where things stand. And so I'm really I'm hopeful that uh, if not this year, certainly in this Congress, that we'll be able to get something done about uh, drug pricing. And how often would you say that issue comes up with constituents, drug pricing specifically? You know, it, it really depends. Um, you know, oftentimes when you're at town halls and things, it's the issue of the day. Um, I think that those are one of those those underlying issues that's always on the table. Health care is always there. Drug pricing is always there as part of that bigger picture. And so when I'm out and I'm talking, I usually mention that and that prompts somebody. It's not something that's on the top of their, in today's uh, social media world and 24-7 media world, it's usually the issues of the day. But when you talk to folks that they are very concerned about it, you talk to, to folks uh, like, like, like my parents who are both 
in assisted living and long-term care. They're, you know, they've got good insurance, but yet there's, they still spend a fair amount of money on drug pricing. So, um, it, it is something that's, I think, a, a growing issue and folks want to be, they don't understand why it is that they're seeing all of these TV ads, you know, and they don't know that some of the TV ads that they see, um, it sounds great, but then they don't see the cost and, and, and they get these bills and they see how much the cost of that drug might be. And they're thinking, is there an alternative? You know, is there an alternative, a way that, 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 uh, uh, pharmacists might can help a little bit more and counsel people a little bit more on alternatives with some of that drugs? There's any number of ways I think that we can do. It's a problem. It's not always on the tips of their tongue, but when you drill down a little bit and you talk about Medicare and you talk about Medicaid and healthcare in general, it always comes up. Uh, yesterday, the House uh, Rules Committee held a hearing on the Medicare for All Act. Um, that's a bill that would roll everyone in, living in the U.S. into a government plan. It would expand Medicare from where it is now. You are not a co-sponsor on the Medicare for All no. Act. Uh, what do you What do you see? Uh, first of all, what do you think of that sort of shift within the Democratic Party because it is becoming more widespread? Um, and also, if since you are not, it, what is an approach that you think is best? Because as you mentioned, premiums are still very expensive. Right. Drugs are still very expensive. Well, I, you know, look, I've always uh, said that I thought we ought to have some type of public option. I think that that getting more people into some type of public option could really help uh, with the market. Um, I, I think that there you've seen a, a little bit a, a more of a – I won't call it a shift, but I do think that there are more voices calling for Medicare all as part of a frustration with this whole process. And, you know, that's part of the issue. We have, uh, again, healthcare has been such a political football over the last 10 or 15 years that there is a growing frustration on the part of folks that we can't get uh, things done uh, in the appropriate way to bring down costs, to bring down healthcare premiums. And so you're going to see, uh, I think, those, those growing voices. And they need to be part of a dialogue. Uh, I don't think that that's where the Congress is going to go. I, I just don't see that. Uh, but I do see that people are going to – that is causing other folks to say, hold on a minute. This is a growing – do we need to – is this really where we need to go? Maybe there are things that we need to do. So with with every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. So here we go. And so now the, the, the idea as to what can we do with si- both sides talking on an extreme sometime of trying to come in the middle and figure out how we can lower uh, premiums. Um, get people coverage. They need health care. I do believe that 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 health care should be the right of somebody. They should not have to just fend for themselves, that we should be able to, as a, as a people, not necessarily as a government, but as a people, to do the things in this country, to have an economy that people can have good health care and access to good health care. It is not that great right now. And public option can mean a few different things. It could mean buying into uh, Medicaid. It could mean buying into Medicare. Uh, but Medicare would have to be changed in order to be more similar to the plans that are offered on the Affordable Care Act. Um, or it could mean being allowed to buy into Medicare at a younger age. Right. Which of those do you think is the I, you best You know, I don't approach? know. I think, I, I think that every one of those options ought to be really uh, looked at. One of the problems that we've had, I think, is that it hasn't been – uh, enough real, you know, hearings and public hearings and stakeholders. So much in Congress is now is done at a staff level, and they talk and and they have they have interest of their members. And um, I, I'd like to see, and and I think uh, Senator Alexander and Senator Murray have really tried to do things and have hearings about what can we do to lower cost. What can I think that that has to be the driving point right there. 
because it's not going to do a whole lot of good to have public options if we don't lower the cost. We've got to figure out how to lower the cost uh, for everyone. And so I think we, if we could have more public hearings on those very options, I'm not wedded to a particular option. Uh, I haven't really, you know, I've, I've been up here for 16 months now, uh, and um, it's, a, it's a heck of an interesting learning curve. And so I am still trying to figure out the best way to look. And we're studying. We've got a great staff that's looking at these. We'll look at all the options. I don't want to foreclose things like that, Those the, the, the three that you named right now. Um, and it could be a combination of those. I don't know. I, I, I will say this. I, I do think one of the things that we've seriously got to do is try to figure out the best way to get young, healthy people into the market somehow, some way. That helps lower the cost of premiums. And, and, and you know, I've, I've been there. Um, I understand uh, where things are, and you, you, you think you're going to live forever, and you don't think you're going to be in an accident. But the fact is we've got to figure out how to get folks in there. I think that would help the market as much as anything. Uh, one of the things that has kind of struck me is that, you know, even though a lot of rhetoric is around uh, Medicare for All, the Medicare for All Act, um, the action in the House is really around extending Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act. Um, and those are the bills that are really, you know, advancing that have the backing of leadership. Um, and given the Trump administration's position on the lawsuit has become, you know, to Democrats in the House more urgent, even to those who would like to see more of an overhaul. Um, so what do you think about the House bill that's being advanced? It would, um, you know, as a, add funding to help advertise the law. It would expand the law so that people making above a certain income threshold are, are able to qualify for subsidies. So that makes the cost of premiums lower to them, um, even though if it makes the cost higher to the government. Um, and then it also injects reinsurance funds into the system so that, you know, essentially it adds more government funding into the system so that premiums are more at bay for customers. And it, it would certainly reach that young group that you think of. I haven't looked at all the specifics on that, but I can tell you that generally I, those are the kind of things I think we need have to start looking at. Uh, you know, I think one of the disappointments uh, that I've had is to see the administration trying to dismantle the, the Affordable Care Act by restricting uh, the advertising, by restricting the times when people can enroll. I think the more people that have access to those abilities, the better. So I think that all of that is, is got to uh, – I think those are important. And I, th- I think what you're seeing – I think you're going to see more people on both sides of the aisle trying to figure out ways to do this because if that lawsuit is successful, we've got to have an alternative. Okay, that's that's what I think people are beginning to be concerned about on both sides of that aisle because we've got to have an alternative. If that lawsuit is successful and all of a sudden the ACA goes away, then we are in trouble. I mean, there's a lot of people in this country, uh, and particularly in my state, who are in trouble, and we've got to have some alternative. And that's why I think people are beginning to look at those issues and look at it on both sides of the aisle and try to figure out how we can come together and find that common ground. So those are good starts. They're not going to be whatever the House passes is not going to be is not going to come over to the Senate in a, in a form and, and get voted on. It's not going to come to the Senate floor. But it is a really good start to, to create the dialogue, send something over to us and let us go from there and talk. Um, the one of the first bills you introduced had to do with uh, rural health. Tell us a little bit about uh, what was in that legislation and why you decided to. Well, mainly it was it was it was trying to create one office in the Department of Agriculture, um, in which they could assimilate and gather all of the federal information about rural health. Right now, it's a hodgepodge of information, or has been across uh, the the various departments, and so it was a, the rural health care liaison. 
and create that in the department so that there would be one place where folks can go to get resources, to get uh, information, to try to, it's, it's just really an effort to try to streamline um, and, and um, make government a little bit more efficient, <laughs> which is a real problem that we have in this city uh, today. And so we've been looking at a number of ways with that, with some other areas that we're looking at, broadband and rural areas and things, to try to to try to bring the resources in the, in, in, into one office so that it can cut through all the bureaucracy and folks will know where to go to without having to get gone from pillar to post. Um, as our last topic, I was really hoping we could talk about uh, paid parental leave. Uh, yeah. I understand that you have met with Ivanka Trump to discuss this. Yeah. I didn't know that before. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about some of those conversations. Well, it was she came she came by the office last year. Now I haven't had any uh, this Congress. Uh, we've reached out. She's reached out to us, but uh, schedules have just not worked out. Uh, but uh, at that time, she came in to talk about the Perkins uh, CTE, uh, you know, uh, reauthorization for. Uh, uh, that kind of educational program, which I was a co-sponsor of. And uh, she brought that up, and I, I told her then, I said, look, I'm all for that. Let me know what we can do. Obviously, there is a lot of pay-for issues uh, involved in that. Uh, but in a, in a state like uh, Alabama, where so many uh, uh, parents struggle uh, with two jobs, we have single parents, we have, you know, it's, it's just a, a real issue that I think anything that we can do um, as a as a government that will help and strengthen families, um, and that sometimes we'll we'll be trying to figure out ways with some financial assistance to give them that security that they need, so that they can have that family unit together. Um, I'm I'm for that. So we haven't we haven't gone that far this year. I haven't. I know there have been discussions that we hope to get involved in, but I think it's an important topic. Uh, I think it's important for families in, in this country as we as we develop, and hopefully we'll get something done. What do you think of uh, the proposal that some conservatives have put forward about allowing uh, new parents to take from their Social Security early in exchange for delaying retirement? You know, I I think that that is worthy of consideration as long as it is, is something that is reasonable. Um, you know, the retirement age, you know, uh, <laughs> the fact of the matter is, you know, I, I, t- I turned 65 on Saturday, okay? So I got that. my Medicare card. Uh, the other day. Oh, yeah. So, um, you know, the aging committee that I'm on means a lot more to me now than it did when I first got up here. Um, but the fact is people are working beyond traditional retirement ages. And so if there's a way to try to do that to where folks can, can, can do something and extend for just a, a period of time, a reasonable period of time, I think you have to be very careful in giving just a blank check for doing that. But it's certainly something I think people ought to consider. I don't have a, a philosophical ob- objection to that um, as long as it's knowing and you know exactly what you're doing and there, there, are, the, there are the limitations on it. Just not let it, it be unbridled. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And is that something that you've discussed with any of the Republicans in the Senate? I have, I have not at this point. I'm sure it will start coming up more as we get into this. We've been... Uh, the first uh, part of the session has been dominated by other issues. Right, right. And and Democrats have a different approach to uh, paid leave. Um, and it, it encompasses more than, you know, parental leave. And it also encompasses sick leave. It would right. add the, the payroll it, tax. It, it, will, it would add that. And so I, what I'm hoping, and maybe I'm just being a Pollyanna about this, but maybe if we can get this side and this side to say we all agree on the goal, let's figure out how to come together and talk about it, something that can get done. Mm-hmm. That's the way it's supposed to work. 
And what's your position on the idea of adding a, a payroll tax to pay for? I don't payments? like adding payroll taxes. I don't like adding any taxes at all. So we'll see how that that goes. I I I think I have you know um, I'm 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 a little bit more uh, on the conservative bent on taxes. Um, you know we've got a, a a fairly heavy tax burden to begin with. I'd like to see how we can 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 cut that back. So I I think that there are ways, but I also think this. I think. That there is, um, I think that th- that provides a space for folks like me uh, to come in and try to talk about on, on both sides of this issue to try to figure out how we can come together. That's what I think has to happen. Right, right. And actually, if you'll excuse me, I do have one more different topic question. I hope it's all right. The raising the tobacco age to 21, since we were talking about that earlier, since uh, you know the majority leader brought forward a, a bill that would do that. Um, what's your position on that? On raising the tobacco age to 21. Mm-hmm. Since I don't smoke, I don't have, you know, look, I I am not opposed to that. I haven't seen that bill, so I really can't comment too much on that. There's been all sorts of issues about tobacco, about vaping and everything else. Um, You know, I I think the things that we can do in in a least restrictive way to try to to make sure we we help people and understand health outcomes, that everything that you do like that has consequences. So, you know, I'll take a look at that. All right, Senator. Well, thank you for your time. My pleasure. We appreciate it. It's good thank to you. see you. Thank you very much. Thanks for answering thank the you. question. My pleasure. Um, I just again, thank you very much, Senator. Thank you, Kim, and thank you all for being here. Two things. Please go to the WashingtonExaminer.com and sign up for Kim's daily newsletter. It's a it's a terrifically informative newsletter for anybody interested in healthcare issues. And the final thing is, most of you will have a copy of the print magazine, uh, which came with the program. If you haven't. Pick one up on the way out because it's a, it's a wonderful-looking magazine, beautifully written, and I think you'll enjoy it. Thanks a lot for coming. Thank you. That was great. It was good to get to know you a little bit better. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much. I hope I wasn't too general on some of this stuff. No, I felt like I had a lot of information. Well, and I didn't know until I talked to Sam, too, even though I was on it before. Because she's been um, discreet, I would say. You know, when we ask her in the town classroom and that she Somebody else, and instead of somebody that's up and coming, and I get that. I understand I'll it. send them. I'll tell you 